Turn in there, I'll tell you. I did fantasy football this year for the first time ever. First time. It might be my last time. I wanted to connect with the youth, so I did it with some of those guys. And it turns out it's all on the computer and uh, was ne- not nearly as meaningful as I wanted it to be. But I will say this. This is why I didn't like it. It wasn't because of that. Why I didn't like it is I'm a team person. I root for the Philadelphia Eagles. My Philadelphia Eagles. That's, that's what I am. I'm about the team. Fantasy football could care less about the team. The way it works, in case you don't know, is you and a group of people, you get together and you draft from the real large body of National Football League football players. You draft your favorite players, your running backs and your quarterbacks. And so it's a competitive draft where you're recruiting all the superstars that you can bring on board for your team. But in reality, they have all different helmets. Your team's running. You know, it's going from a dolphin to a patriot through an eagle and being, you know, blocked forward by a raven or something like that. It's just a bunch of different helmets, but it's your team of individuals, your superstar team, and then their performance during the real football week translates to your performance online. You feel talented, you feel self-accomplished, and you haven't done anything. That's fantasy football. And that's why it's taken America by storm. But, but, so I'll say, I don't, I don't like it because it highlights the individual in what I have always resolutely felt is a team sport. And I've dug my hills in, and it was hard for me this year. There were times that I found myself rooting for somebody running against my Eagles defensive line because I had them on fantasy football. And then I was like, I had to take a shower, and I felt guilty. And it was terrible. But I will say this, this is, one, this is one thing that fantasy football has given me a better appreciation of is football is a team sport. I believe that firmly. But individuals make a big difference. There really are, in something like football, as in most endeavors in life, game-changing individuals, people who make all the difference, people who they, you, they, they're embedded in a team, but the team builds themselves around the person because they're that significant, they're that athletic, or they're just that large of an individual that, 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 that the team kind of marches to the beat of their drum in order to succeed. And I have gained a better appreciation for the idea that there really is a complex relationship between the team-oriented nature of football, as in most things in life, and the importance of individuality within that setting. I mean, to be honest, even the strongest team-oriented coach still wants players who are at the very heart of it, driven individuals. That's what you want. You want somebody who, who, who's not there to mess around. He's not there. He, wants, he wants the ball. He wants to run with the ball or catch the ball or throw the ball. And he, he wants to make the block. He wants to make the hit. He wants all of the ambitious things that an individual would want. That's, that's, what, that's what you want to build a team of. You want to build a team of ambitious individuals who at the same time understand the delicate balance of their in, the size of their individuality and the needs of the team. And that's right there, that's the, that's the gotcha, isn't it? Is how large of a person can you have before the team dissolves? We in Philadelphia have certainly seen that. Well, all this to say, um, I think this is true, not just in football, but in life, but certainly in the life of the church. This is... 
a team built of individuals in a very individualistic society. And so this morning, kind of as we continue down the path of how does the church look, we're going to take a second to critique some individualistic ideas. Now listen, I'm not saying individualism is bad. And on Monday, that's what I would have said. The sermon was so much easier on Monday. I was just going to go, individualism is bad. Don't be that. Don't be an individual. And then I realized, can't do that. And the more you think about it, there really are a lot of wonderful things about individualism that you and I take for granted because we're all card-carrying individualists. The West is so individualistic. But here's just a few of them, a few wonderful things that come out of individualism. First of all, it is a cultural juggernaut. Things happen in individualistic societies because people feel empowered to accomplish great things. Little Tommy says, what am I going to be when I grow up? And in an individualistic society, we say, whatever you want to be, just work hard. I mean, that, there's emotion, there's great things. Individualistic countries put people on the moon. They bring them together as teams, but people are driven to accomplish things in, in our kind of culture. Another thing that happens is in an individualistic society, when, when something is spoken, a truth or a teaching is spoken down, the people are naturally geared to take the teaching, receive it, and apply it to their own personal life. I'm not saying they buy into it. I'm saying when there's a teaching, we scrutinize it in the way that it applies to our own life. We want to know, how does, this, how does this apply here? We have a certain sense of like personal responsibility for our actions. This is not the case everywhere in the world. There are some people groups who could care less about the teaching. They just want to know, what is the chief going to do? Whatever the chief does. It's immaterial what they think. Or there's some who live in, a, live in where there's so many cultural rules that say this is just how it's going to be. And, and, and they're, not, they're, they're not really free to kind of make their own decisions about those things because they're fairly, fairly tied down. But in, in our culture, there's kind of a freedom to think for yourself. There's a freedom to ask questions. There's a freedom to doubt and, and to act accordingly. And then finally, this one may sound odd, but, but I do think in individualistic cultures, there is a higher degree or respect for the individual life. We recognize life for what it is. We recognize that a person is a person. I'm not saying we always do that well. I'm not saying that in our culture we don't have those places where, where that hasn't happened well enough. But if, when you travel, go to the Middle East or to East Asia, this does not exist in the same way. The idea that this person is unique and is an image bearer, that doesn't surface quite as easily in every other culture. And so, anyway, those are a lot of good things about individualism. I'm not going to keep selling it to you because you are it. Um, but I will say, when I, this morning, when I critique some elements of it, I'm not critiquing it just by and large. I'm saying these are some negative sides of it that have affected teams or churches or people. So with that said, let's look at uh, chapter 12 of Corinthians. And I'm going to read verses 12 to 27. This is often read with regards to giftedness. I want you to kind of read it with regards to what we've said already. Here's the reading. The body is a unit, 
Though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged all the parts in the body every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honorable we treat with special honor, and the parts that are unrepresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. That's good, isn't it? That's some of the best text in the Bible. That, and by the way, look at uh, 13. Right? You certainly is familiar to even some of the newest of us, and now I will show you most excellent way, and then it goes into the love chapter, if I speak with the tongues of angels. This is, the, this is some of the best stuff in the whole Bible. Certainly in the book of 1 Corinthians, it is the crowning glory of 1 Corinthians these, these areas, these high-minded, high-minded, lofty language kind of moments where Paul's almost writing in poetry, just explaining the way things are, and, and these images that just speak so deeply into the reality of, of who the church is and how we independently interrelate within the church. It's just beautiful, and you would never in a million years know it if you didn't read the whole letter that chapter 12 comes at the end of 11 brutal chapters where Paul tears the church of Corinth to pieces. That's what's so strange about this. You get to this place and everything quiets down. People straighten out. I mean, there's elegance and there's high language. But before this, he's saying things like, some of you are arrogant and you don't think I'm going to come and tell you that, but I'm coming. He actually says that in the fourth chapter. He says, I'm coming. And heck's coming with me. He doesn't say that. <laughs> but, but he has this kind of roughness in the earlier chapters. He has a real roughness of calling the Corinthian church out and, and identifying their sins and saying, you're doing this wrong. And, he, and he's not gentle with it. He calls it out. And, and you have to wait all the way until it gets to 12 for him to kind of pause and say, this is how it should be. 
This is how it should be. So what I'd like us to do is we're going to look at this reading I just did, kind of at three, three teachings about individualism or how we connect to the church and kind of in light of, of what's said earlier, which obviously we haven't read, but in light of, of kind of the earlier mess of the Corinthian church. In the first one, if you just look at verses 12 and 13 again, the first thing we can see is that we are identified by our relationship to the whole, not so much by our part. In other words, Paul's writing, I mean, when he says here, the body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and then he goes on to say, uh, all its parts are many, but they form one body. What he's saying is, is that in the church, in the body of Christ, your identity is not fully appreciable outside of the way it connects to the larger organism, the body of Christ. That you are, you are, it's not enough for you to say, I'm just a Christian. That doesn't end it. What Paul's saying is, is you are not even fully known unless, except by the way that you connect to the larger church. There's no value for an eye just sitting on the table or a hand. The part itself is useless apart from the larger body. There is in the first three chapters, really into the fourth chapter of Corinthians, one of the issues that surfaces, the first he begins to address, is the factionalism and a division that's building up in the, in the church in Corinth over whose message the people follow the most. Some say they like the message of Paul. Some say, well, Apollos. Some say Peter. And yet even others say, we follow Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, you know, are you serious? That's kind of how he approaches it. He says, you are mistaking notable individuals for a very notable message. In other words, Jesus Christ crucified has been preached into your lives. The grace that comes through faith in Christ Jesus, through the forgiveness of sins, has been preached to you. And you're sitting back talking about the fact that you like the way he preached it more than the way he preached it. And he says, really, is that possible? But there's this, there's this element, there's this individualistic element in us that is very person-centric. It's person-oriented, and it will tend. It will tend at times to be more attracted to people than to truth or to ideas. And Paul is saying, Paul is saying, look up. The church is, 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 is a body that's built for a purpose. It's been anointed by the Spirit. It's been baptized into Christ. That's what should have our attention the individual traits of one person over another, which were breeding dissension in the community. We are identified by our relationship with one another as a whole. The second thing is in verses 14 to 20, and it's, it's this, that we were made for a specific purpose. I think verse 18 says it very well. It says, but in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. What Paul's saying is, is that every one of you, every single one of you, has been is here for a specific reason. Every one of you that's part of this body has a role in this body, has a purpose in this body as you've been made I want to contrast that a little bit with 
the way our culture has is a culture of promotion. We live in we the world we live in is one that is about changing your status and your station in life. That that's how right outside of these walls that's how it all operates. Is you start off here, but then you become this, and if you're really good, you become this, and you work all the way up to this so that your kids can start here and work up from there so that their kids can start here, right? So two generations ago, people didn't graduate high school. Last generation, the first one in the family went to college. Next generation, there's a master's degree. And pretty soon, all your children were born with diplomas. That's kind of the, the, the idea. There's, there's a dissatisfaction with a low station in life. There's a dissatisfaction with something that doesn't have in and of itself a lot of status. There's an expectation that you'll promote, that you'll work hard and you'll promote. This is certainly the case, right? This is how it is. How weird would it be if you said in your workplace, and some of us should say this more than we do, I don't need the promotion. I like where I am just as it is. Even the cultural stigma There's a constant temptation preaching into your lives at work, which is you're not good enough unless you're a little higher. But God has made each one of us in a specific way to be here. And if we're constantly here and we're worried about changing our status and our station, there's this this desire that we're migrating towards certain body parts, right? We all want to be eyes or or whatever the trend of the day is. We all want to be feet or we all want to be this or all that. And Paul says, relax, relax about it. This gift is not necessarily better than that gift. And this gift, even though it's far more visible, is not nearly as honored by the Lord as this gift worked out in humility. The Lord's saying, you're made different respect and enjoy the differences between people. In old Europe, you know, pre-enlightenment Europe, if you were a miller, your son would be a miller. There was no question about it. You're a miller. You work hard to be a miller. If you're fortunate to have children, they're likely going to be in the milling industry. That's just how it was. It wasn't like if you were a really good miller, your son went on to be a rocket scientist. That's how last, these last names started. Mr. Miller is because his whole line was millers, just like Mr. Smith or Mr. Cooper or whatever it was. These were, these, these were family occupations. And the family wasn't trying to deviate outside those lines. That's who they were. That's the, that's the way they fit in the culture. They were that part of their village body, and they found contentment. Well, I don't know if they did or not, but that's how it worked. God has made us for a specific purpose. And we should find satisfaction with that. Here's the third idea. That the health of the body should be our concern. The health of the body should be our concern. Not just your health, but the health of the larger body It says halfway through verse 24, it says this, but God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lack it so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. For if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. And if one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Chapters 5 through 11 of 1 Corinthians, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, they're all dealing with the same theme, which is this, that the 
members of the church in Corinth had received the grace of Christ and the freedom that comes through that, and they have mis- systematically misinterpreted it as license for specific kind of liberties and rights. You hear this? They've taken the gospel and they've said it's what the, the truth of the gospel. The good news in their ears really is what, what they are allowed to do now. The rights that they've gained or, or the territory that they have, their liberties, that's now important. And so Paul begins in the fifth chapter to say that there is actually people in your church, he writes, that are sinning openly and wickedly and you're not doing anything about it. Now why are they not doing anything about it? Because you know, the second you step into somebody else's yard, they're going to step into yours. There's this discomfort. It's, it's far too libertarian for, for, for the Lord here. He's saying, look, their life matters to you because they're in the body. And your life matters to them because you're in the body. And, and he doesn't mince words about it. He says, you know what you need to do? You need to get rid of this guy. Because for some reason, you're more concerned about his comfort than the health of the church. One of them's going to perish. And so he says, you need to fix your eyes on the church, that the body of Christ is what's important. But they've been so fixed on personal liberties. Right after that, Paul says, right on the tail of that, he says, by the way, I'm also hearing that there's members in the church that are suing one another. He says, is this possible? Is it possible that your own personal concern for your liberty and rights trumps the health of the community? He says, I I don't even want to believe that. And he goes on from there to begin to talk about other issues. He says, there's people who are using their liberties at at, at not appreciating for how it's affecting people around them. So there's a guy here who's struggling to go clean from alcohol, and there's somebody here going, well, I'm at liberty. And he says, do you see what's happening here? I mean, he's talking about these sorts of ideas, and there's someone over here who's abusing his liberty to the great confusion and spiritual downfall of someone else. And he's saying, your freedom is not freedom to do what you want. Your freedom is to do what's right. And your concern should not be for your rights, but for the welfare of your brother and sister in Christ. But they've got it all messed up. And it goes on and on and on and on. It ends finally in 11 when he says, and then... When you come together for the Lord's Supper, some of you rush in, you stuff your faces, there's no food left for the other people, and then you have the gall to go to Jesus and say, it's all about you. And he says, that's why some of you have died. Because of that attitude. The selfish, self-centered attitude that within a community, some group could feed and feed and feed and glutton while another group sits outside the room waiting. And him saying, this is a mockery of what unity with God is. And he wouldn't tolerate it. And he says, "When when you fellowship like this, you do it as a curse upon yourself. And then we get to chapter 12, this beautiful language. The health of the body should be our concern. Paul has called us to die to ourselves, to crucify ourselves. Scripture calls us to place the kingdom of God in front of us and to make it the goal and the prize, not our own safety and security, not our own well-being, but the well-being and the kingdom. This is what should be our goal. These are the... 
some three lessons from Corinthians that we should identify ourselves through the relationship with the body that be that God has made each one of us unique to serve a specific role and that the overall health of the church should be our concern. This is, this is the teaching of the Lord. So how, how does that land in our church, in the life of our church? Practically, practically speaking. What does that mean here? Well, I would say one of the ways, you know I'm going here, one of the ways that, that we express this idea, or one of the ways as of late, has been with pedal. Now, pedal's nothing in general, but certainly in our church, there's ways that some serve and some learn, and there's, there's been ways that that has been managed, and pedal has walked in and tried to kind of clear the dust out on some of that and make it a little calmer. But the idea is the same. Of there's a mutual responsibility on Sunday for the mutual growth and maturity of the body. And that God has made all of us unique in this family to kind of share in that happening. And that as we head towards maturity, the overall welfare of the room, the church, becomes a primary concern for us. That's, that's the idea. And so I might express it this way. On the wall over there are... Um, posters with, with spots that have space for a name, which translates to, I'll help out here during this part of the year. Now, the spots that are there, we didn't contrive them in order to find a place for you. It's, it's not the way we did it. It's not like a communist nation where we're set on having 0% unemployment. And so I've in, we've invented spots... So that have exactly the amount of spots as people here. That's not at all what we've done. In fact, we did it the opposite way. We said, what is required, given our commitment towards kind of a healthy Sunday environment, what's required to do the things we have to do? And we determined the need, and that's the expression of the need. Now, particularly down the children's side, that's exactly how the need is expressed. The farther you move towards, towards the kitchen here, those have room for growth because there are some ministries that have been handcuffed by handcuffed in vision by not having any kind of manpower. A perfect example is the usher ministry. We think there should be some kind of usher safety guy in the parking lot to say to kids, "Slow down, tiger," right? And to say to cars, "Slow down, sir." We we think there should be that. But when you have one usher on a given Sunday, he's He's the formal bulletin passer-outer. The church is bigger than that, right? We've moved on from that. It would be nice if we had greeters at every single entry. It would be nice if we had enough greeters that when if a new family came in and they said, where's the bathroom? You wouldn't have to say, well, go down the hall, turn left, there's stairs, go up the stairs, turn right, it's the second or third door on your left. You could say, I'll tell you what, I'll walk you down there and I'll show you. But right now we have so few people that to do that, we would have no greeters on station. And big red lights would go off. And so in some places we've added spaces because we think the church should be in a place that it is not yet. All that to say is there's spots over there, and this is what I would say. I would encourage you, in, in light of the Lord's word, that when you go over there, over the next couple Sundays, this Sunday and next Sunday, and you're looking, this is, this is what I want to ask you to do, is to is to ask one more question than, 
then you may be accustomed to asking. Certainly when you go over there, you're going to ask a question like this, what, what am I good at? That's a good question to ask. I encourage you to ask it. I'm, I'm, individualism has great things about it. Certainly your job performance, you, your fulfillment will be, will be higher in an area in which you feel very capable. So I encourage you to ask that question. Another question you'll ask right after that is, is what do I like to do? Some things you're good at, but you don't like to do them. Some things you do Monday through Friday. It's the last thing you want to do on Sunday. But you might say, well, what do I like to do? And I would encourage you to ask that question. How great would it be if you were serving a place that you were both talented and you had fun? All right. That's great. Another question you're going to ask probably shortly after that is, is where are my friends? That's a great question to ask. I would encourage you to look up there. How great would it be if you were doing something you liked, something you were good at, and you were among friends? So wonderful questions to ask. Then you're going to probably say something like, well, what's my vacation schedule? When's spring break? And you're going to balance those. And you're going to have your list of seven or eight more questions that kind of are unconsciously spinning in your mind. I'm asking that you add one more to it, and it's this. Where am I needed? Just, where am I needed? I'm not saying that that owns the day. I'm just saying we should be migrating towards that question. Our ultimate identity is found not in ourselves, but in our relationship to the body of Christ. And God has made each one of us to serve a specific role within this body. And our ultimate concern, a concern in our lives, should be the overall welfare of the church.